You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. Your host is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. How do second-generation drug-eluting stents reduce the risk of late-stent thrombosis, myocardial infarction, and repeat revascularization? Our guest today is Dr. Richard Lang, Professor and Executive Vice Chairman of Medicine at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. Welcome, Dr. Lang. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you, Dr. Wright. Well, I'm looking forward to one of my favorite topics. I'm a recovering interventionalist. I wonder if you would give our audience sort of a brief history of drug-eluting stents. How long they've been around? What's their penetration, so to speak? Absolutely. Well, you know, we're in the second-generation stents now, so it's probably best to start with the first-generation stents. And they actually became available in the United States in about 2002. Now, I guess that, let me take even a further step back and say that these drug-eluting stents are an improvement over what are called bare metal stents. That is where a metal scaffold is placed into an artery in which there's a significant stenosis in an attempt after the artery's been dilated to scaffold or keep the vessel open. And what we recognized was that several months after placement of the stent, people would develop recurring stenosis, or what's known as restenosis, as there was proliferation of the tissue inside the stent wall. So we develop what are called drug-eluting stents. And this is where an antiproliferative agent is actually bound to the stent with what's called a biopolymer. So these drug-eluting stents do have the same metal scaffold as the older stents, but they have a biopolymer to which is adhered an antiproliferative drug. And what they do is they reduce the restenosis rate normally seen with a bare metal stent, which occurs in 10 to 20% of individuals, to about 5 or at most 10% with the drug-eluting stents. So the first generation of stents were available in the U.S., as I mentioned, in about 2002. They were known as the Cypher stent. That was a stent that eluded a drug called Sirolimus. There was a Taxus stent, which eluded a drug called Paclitaxel, and an Endeavor stent, which eluded a drug called Zotorolimus all made by three different companies, as you might surmise. And the reason why this is so important is because this is a big business. There is about $5 billion spent on stents so far. That's billion with a B. Billion with a B. There have been over 2 million of these stents implanted. So you can see this is big business. And not only that, it has important health implications. So those were the first generation stents. And the second generation stents are, as you might imagine, improvements on these. And they improve in three ways. And that is they use different antiproliferative agents. They use different biopolymers. They use a different stent scaffold. For example, the second generation stent that we have available now releases a drug called Everolimus. That's an antiproliferative agent. It's got an entirely different biopolymer that's less inflammatory. That is, it elicits less of an inflammatory response after it's been placed. And then the metal stents that go into the artery actually have smaller struts. They're thinner. They're not quite as thick as the previous ones. So those are the second-generation stents. And recent studies have shown that one or more of these different properties actually make the stents better than the first generation. Dropping that restenosis rate even further. They drop the restenosis rate and the thrombosis rate. Specifically, over the course of about a two-year follow-up, 
there was an absolute reduction of about 3.6% or a, a relative risk reduction of 53% with the newer, that is the second generation drug eluting stent, as compared to the first generation. Dramatic improvement. It is. And these, again, are stents that are improved with respect to the patient care, but also with respect to deliverability. They're a little bit more flexible, a little bit easier to deliver, a little bit easier to use for the operator. Now, the downside is, as you might imagine, is they're a little bit more expensive. And on average, they cost currently about $300 more than the first-generation stents. And total cost for our audience it may not be so accustomed to hearing these numbers. Total cost for a stent would range, oh, depending about 1500 to $2,000. So uh, that would be the average cost. Now, that's per stent. And as you and I are both aware, Dr. Wright, is that many individuals have more than one stent placed. And that is, they either have multiple blockages in different vessels or multiple blockages in the same vessel. So on average, individuals get somewhere between two and three stents. And perhaps you might spend a moment or two describing stent thrombosis and the various phases at which a patient might suffer a stent thrombosis, what we would do differently and to reduce the risk at each stage. That's an excellent question. With the bare metal stents, we talked about the fact that they have an increased risk of restenosis, and that's because after the stent's placed, the tissue grows over and it covers the metal struts, and that tissue repair response is over-exuberant and causes restenosis, but it, it covers the metal so that the bare metal stents have a risk of acute thrombosis, that is formation of a clot, just within the first two weeks after they're placed, maybe even four weeks, but no longer than that, because after that, tissue has covered the stent. But as you're aware, with the drug-eluting stents, somewhere between 40 and 50% of the stent is never covered. And that is the anti-proliferative agent is so good at preventing tissue from growing inside the stent that months and sometimes years later, there are still stent struts that are exposed to the circulating blood. And it's for this reason that individuals that receive a drug-eluting stent need to take intensive antiplatelet therapy that is usually aspirin and clopidogrel or a clopidogrel-like drug for at least a year and perhaps even longer. This is important for, I think, patients that are listening and physicians that have patients that have received these tests to understand how important it is to continue dual antiplatelet therapy for at least a year. And studies have shown that if it's stopped for any reason, that is the patients decided they don't want to take it or they can't afford it, or the patients need to have some surgical procedure, that is an orthopedic procedure, or some other surgical procedure, and the drug is stopped, then that puts the patient at risk of having acute stent thrombosis. And the danger with that is that carries a very high mortality. That is, for individuals that have had acute stent thrombosis, the mortality is about 65%. So it's not a problem to be sneezed at. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright, and our guest today is Dr. Richard Lang. He's professor and executive vice chairman of medicine at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. We're discussing second-generation drug-eluting stents. Dr. Lang, I want to go back and have you emphasize once again the importance of stent selection in a given patient. Could you outline for us the issues that an interventional cardiologist is considering and ideally discussing with patients at the time of stenting? There are three therapies available to patients that have 
coronary blockages, that is medical therapy, optimal medical therapy, for patients that fail medical therapy or who are considered to be at a very high risk for having a complication related to the coronary disease, then they would undergo revascularization, either percutaneously with stent placement usually, or with coronary bypass surgery. And recent studies have shown that the more complex the disease, that is, the more often it is multivessel or has what I'm going to consider oh, adverse conditions, that is, it's very calcified, or the lesion would occur at a bifurcation or the ostium of a blood vessel. It seems that those individuals have a higher complication rate with percutaneous coronary intervention and a better long-term result with bypass surgery. So there are anatomic features that we consider. There are also patient-related features. For example, the patients with diabetes, especially those with multivessel disease, appear to do better with bypass surgery in the long term than they do with stenting. On the other hand, younger patients, those with less complex disease, those that are relatively stable, those individuals do just as well with stenting as they do with bypass surgery. Maybe you could talk a little bit about, again, viewing the economics of healthcare along with doing absolutely the highest quality for each individual patient. How about the selection of first or second generation stenting? Is there occasion now where a first generation stent would do or a bare metal stent would actually be preferred? In the studies that we have so far, it appears that the diabetic patients really do equally as well with the first generation stents as they do with the second generation stents at least with the current stent technology we have available. Since about a third of the patients that undergo stenting are diabetic, that would indicate that they'd be suitable for either type of stent. Now, the remainder of patients seem to do better with the second-generation stent. But, you know, this is a moving target because stents are getting better, and the second-generation stents will give way to third- and fourth-generation stents. And we also have stents now in which we don't use a metal scaffold, but we use a completely bioabsorbable polymer. That is, a patient can have a stent placed into their artery, and over the course of six months to up to two years, the stent would completely dissolve. So the stent technology is really rapidly evolving. The important thing is that stents be compared in randomized control trials in a large enough patient population so we can really identify whether the stents are inferior or superior to the stents that we're currently using. And although there are a lot of theoretical and hypothetical situations where stent changes may seem like improvements. Until they're proven in large trials, we really shouldn't accept them in lieu of the current stents we have available. I live a sort of schizophrenic life of being grateful that I'm in cardiology because our evidence base is so much deeper than in other areas of research and clinical care. But on the other hand, even though ours is among the deepest, it's still pretty shallow. Is there sufficient funding of the randomized control trials for stents? Probably never enough, but how are you feeling about the investigation of stents of the present and future? Currently, because it's such big business, almost all the funding that occurs occurs through industry. That is, the randomized control trials that are being conducted, looking at individual stent designs, really aren't being done at the level of the NHLBI or the National Institutes of Health, but they're being done by industry. What that means as physicians and as consumers is we need to really look at these studies carefully. I don't say with a jaundice eyes, but they need to be scrutinized to make certain that the investigation is completely above board, that 
the investigators and the studies aren't being influenced by the sponsor and that the results are being interpreted correctly. So as long as it continues to be big business, big business will continue to invest in the studies. And we're talking about studies that involve usually between two and 3,000 patients. And so currently, if the stent looks promising in the initial trials, then the companies are willing to front up the money to continue them. A good example is the bioabsorbable stent, which you're aware, Dr. Wright, recently got big press because in a small study of several hundred patients, it looked quite favorable. And this has prompted the company to put on really a major trial, seeing whether it's really as efficacious as the currently available drug-eluting stents. We both know that the FDA is beginning to ramp up something they call the Sentinel Initiative, trying to identify a device and pharmaceutical misbehavior, if you will. Would you comment about stents and as we use them in real-world situations, how are you feeling about the safety signals, our ability to detect problems with stents, and then to disseminate that information more broadly? What we would like to see in a randomized control trial is an unbiased trial in which all the results are properly reported and properly interpreted. And as you and I are aware, there have been instances, particularly with regard to some of the pharmaceuticals, where some of the adverse side effects either haven't been noted or haven't been noted as a sentinel event. And and as a result, they've kind of gone under the radar screen. And only after we've had larger registries have, have we come to understand that some of the drugs are really much more dangerous or concerning than originally thought. The FDA, not surprisingly, is trying to clamp down on this. It comes to the issue of patient safety and integrity in scientific discovery and in reporting. When industry is involved in trials, whether that be a pharmaceutical trial or a drug trial, they need to give the investigator all the data, that is, the good data and the bad data, and they need to recuse themselves from reporting that, that is, the company does, so that the investigator should have complete autonomy. Conversely, the investigator needs to be free of conflict of interest as well. And, Good uh, sound practice there. Absolutely. It sounds easy, but sometimes, <laughs> it's, as you're alluded to, it's not as easy as it seems. We've been talking with Dr. Richard Lang about second-generation drug-eluting stents. Dr. Lang, it was a privilege to speak with you today. Thanks for being our guest. Dr. Wright, it was my pleasure. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.